Good morning, church. How are you this morning? Good. We're in Hebrews chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. You probably, you probably figured that out already because we put it up on the screens. But just in case you're one of those who's a little late to the game, I figured I'd tell you. Hebrews 3. There you go. We are in an ongoing series in the book of Hebrews, and uh, it's interesting that the, uh, the chapter 3 that we'll be studying, the beginning of chapter 3 that we'll be looking at this morning, begins the way it does because it's sort of a natural flow from what we looked at last week. As we've already said, if you've been in the study with this uh, sort of ongoing, the book has a uh, sort of a Jewish method in the way that it's written in that it's cyclical. It kind of stacks up on top of each other. You'll see some repetition and some pattern sort of building. There are some key central themes that come up again and again and again. But here as we get into chapter 3, you'll notice the first word of chapter 3 is therefore. And what that's doing then is it's pointing us backward, right? If you've been with us in the midst of the series, we saw that in chapter 1, the author to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins by saying Jesus is the clearest, most concise, most beautiful thing that God will ever say. He's spoken all kinds of ways in the past, but now he's spoken to us through his son. And it's a superior word because he is a superior being, because he's God. In fact, it goes on to say in chapter one, he's superior to the angels in case there's any inclination in the, uh, the heart and mind of his here to try and diminish Jesus, to try and bring him down to a lower level to make him easier to deal with. The writer of the Hebrews says, don't be tempted to do that. Jesus is superior. He is the very radiance of God's glory, the exact impression of his nature. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He's superior in every way. That theme is gonna come up again and again. So then as we come into chapter two, he says, so because of what we understand about Jesus, because we understand that he is superior, we have to pay more careful attention. And we looked at that last week. We have to pay more careful attention because if we were held accountable to the message that was brought to our forefathers by angels, how much greater will that accountability be if God, the superior one to the angels, brings a message through his son? How much greater will that message be in our accountability to it? He says, Jesus is the founder of our salvation. At the end of chapter two, we looked last week, it talks about the fact that Jesus came to earth, that he calls us his brothers, that he makes propitiation for sins, which means that he atones for us, that he is a sacrificial substitute on our behalf, and he obtains for us, procures for us, and extends to us this holiness. So when we get to chapter three, all of that gets summarized in the word therefore. He says, okay, because of everything we've heard, the superiority of Jesus, because of his saving work, And then he addresses us. He says, therefore, this is chapter three, verse one. He says, therefore, holy brothers. Ooh, that feels good, doesn't it? I mean, you're probably tempted to go, you're talking to me. You're talking to me, holy brother. Like, I'm no holy brother. I I mean, you might be talking about like a Franciscan monk somewhere with sandals on or whatever, but that's not, I'm not a holy brother. And yet that is exactly what the writer is saying. Sometimes it's hard to even recognize who we are, right? I, I, uh, when I moved to Long Beach, I had to get a new doctor. I'm assuming I'm probably gonna have to get a new doctor eventually here in Fullerton, but I haven't been sick yet. So someday I'm gonna have to do that. But when I moved to Long Beach, I had to get a new doctor. And uh, anytime you sign up for a new doctor, you have to kind of do that initial interview, right? So I, I go in, I meet with this doctor, and uh, he's asking me all these medical questions and whatever, I answer everything. And then he says, okay, well, let's turn to the personal section of the interview. He says, just tell me a little bit about yourself. And I said, okay, well, you know, let's see... Um, I like movies, I like music, I go to a lot of concerts, I said I'm into literature, I like comic books, I love watching television, Um, I like art and theater, and he goes, so you're basically what we'd call a sedentary lifestyle. (laughs) And uh, 
Now, here's the thing. You're laughing because you know what that word means, but I did not know what the word sedentary means, right? So he goes, you're basically what we call a sedentary lifestyle. And I assumed because I'd just been articulating all of these different artistic endeavors that I'm interested in, that that meant like artsy or something, right? So he, I said, oh, I'm into reading. I'm into theater. I'm into music and concerts, all these things. He goes, oh, you're what we call a sedentary lifestyle. Here's my response. I go, yeah, I guess you could say that. Thanks, doc, right? And he just kind of, he gave me a weird look, wrote something else down, you know, it kind of went on. Well, later that day I get home and I'm, and I'm reflecting on the whole conversation. And I remember like, he called me sedentary and I responded to it like it was a compliment, but I don't know what that word means. So I look it up on the internet, right? And on the internet, you look up sedentary and it says a lifestyle characterized by inactivity. And then in parentheses, it says couch potato. So check out the way this goes down. I'm with my brand new doctor and he goes, tell me about your life. I go, here are all the things I'm interested in. He essentially goes, so you're what I would call a couch potato. And I go, yeah, doc, I guess you could say that. Thanks very much. I'm chubby, right? What, like, I don't know. And because I didn't know what he was, addre- like, I didn't really take to heart what he was addressing me as. The writer to the Hebrews says, therefore, in light of this great salvation, in light of the supremacy of Christ, holy brothers, and he's talking to us. That word brothers there is not a gender specific term. He's not just talking to men. He's talking to the brethren, right? Men and women. It could just as easily say holy sisters. He says, therefore, you who are holy, not because of your works, not because of your righteousness, not because of your efforts or because of your church attendance or whatever, but as he said in chapter two, holy because of the saving work of Christ and brothers because of the adoption of Christ, right? That he calls us brothers. He becomes a human being in the incarnation and he is not ashamed to call us his family. He says, therefore, in light of the saving work of Christ, both his holiness and his adoption, I can address you as holy brothers. Just let that sit on you for a second. I don't know how you think of yourself. I don't know what titles you feel comfortable with. But the author of the Hebrews refers to us as holy brothers, not because of our effort, not because of anything indicative of who we are, but because of God's work on our behalf. He says, therefore, holy brothers, and then he gives another descriptor. He says, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. You know, there are a lot of things that unite different groups of people. There are, you know, you drive down the street and you see all different kinds of clubs and they're united by common interests or they're united by common experience or they're united by common tastes or preferences. Can I tell you, the thing that unites the body of Christ, the thing that draws all of us here together is not our common tastes or our common experience or our common preferences. The thing that unites us here is that we have a shared calling a shared calling, and it's a heavenly calling, which has a couple of implications. It's both a calling from heaven, God reaching out to mankind in the incarnation, reaching out to us from heaven. There's a heavenly calling, which means it's from heaven, but implied in that is also the fact that it's a calling to heaven. And I don't just mean the streets of gold calling to heaven. You know, like some people sort of think about religion in terms of like, well, it's a way to walk on streets of gold and go to heaven someday. There is a part of that, But more importantly, there's a calling of Jesus. It says in all of the gospels in one way or another, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is available. There is both a call from heaven and a call to heaven, a heavenly calling. 
both in eternity and now to live in submission to the authority of heaven. That's why Jesus will pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A heavenly calling to live in submission to the kingship of Christ today. To live in the kingdom of God today. He says, you, holy brethren, holy brothers and sisters, holy and adopted because of Christ, who share, who are united in a heavenly calling, both from heaven and to heaven, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. What? That seems fairly simple, doesn't it? Therefore, in light of his supremacy, his superiority over angels, in light of the superior message, the clearest thing God's ever said, in light of his redemptive work on our behalf, consider him. Listen, this idea of considering is not just sort of a, a passing thought. It doesn't mean, you know, give, give a moment's thought to Jesus. It's talking about the idea of allowing your, your heart and your mind to be fixed upon Christ. He says, holy brothers, Hebrews chapter three, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider him. Consider Jesus. The idea here is of applying your mind, fixing your thinking to continuously observe or to be focused upon. I had the... Um, I had the opportunity when I was young, I was a, a senior in, excuse me, a freshman in college. I went with my uh, church youth group up to this youth convention in Flagstaff and my youth pastor said, I want you to be in charge of the video camera, right? And I want you to video all the things our youth group is doing so that we can splice together a thing later, you know, on the video toaster or whatever. And I say video because it was like a huge thing with a big cassette and it wasn't like a little video camera, right? I still have the tape of the footage that I shot at that youth convention. It was in 1992. And here's the thing. I do have videos of all of the kids from our youth group playing volleyball and going bowling and eating pizza and all the things kids do at a, at a youth convention. But in the background of every shot, the background of every shot, there is this girl, right? There's this girl in the background. of her, And it becomes very clear as you watch the video that I was essentially following her around. The girl's name... Uh, the girl's name is Shannon Braithwaite. She eventually became my wife. Uh, but that was, that was the weekend where I met her. And I'll tell you, I spent a lot of time considering her, right? And I don't mean that I sort of considered her in a passing way or that I gave her a fleeting thought. My thoughts and my heart were fixed upon her in such a way that I was doing all these other things, but she was still there in the midst, right? The idea is for us holy brothers, holy sisters who share in a calling both from heaven and to heaven, submitted to the authority of heaven, to consider him, to allow our hearts to settle upon the person of Christ. And this is key. It's fundamental. The psalmist talks about being focused on God. In Psalm 27, verse four, it says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The author of the Hebrews says in light of who Jesus is, we have to allow our hearts and our minds to rest and to settle upon the person of Christ. 
And he can't say it enough. He said something like that before. He's going to say it again and again and again that you and I, holy brothers and sisters, can't take enough time to fix our thoughts upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. He talks a little bit about what that focus looks like. Back to Hebrews chapter 3. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Settle your mind upon Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is interesting. For what it's worth, if you're taking notes, this is the only place in the entirety of the Bible where Jesus is referred to as an apostle. It's the only time that term is applied to him. Also, worth noting, the only place in all of the Bible where Jesus is referred to as a high priest is in the book of Hebrews. So we see the singular use of the title apostle for Jesus. We see uh, one of 12 uses of the title high priest for Jesus, but only in the book of Hebrews do we find that title. But that's very interesting because he's just called us and, and referred to us as people who share in a heavenly calling, both from heaven and to heaven. It's interesting that he now says, consider Jesus, focus your hearts and your minds upon him. He is our apostle and our high priest. Well, what's an apostle? An apostle is an emissary. It literally means a sent one. What is that? It's the one who brings the message from heaven. What's a high priest? It's an intercessor. Someone who makes clear the way to God. So when he says to us, we share in this heavenly calling, both a a calling from heaven and to heaven, he then goes on to say, fix your minds and your hearts upon Jesus. Consider this Jesus who is both the message from heaven and the way to glory. The way to the throne of God. Our high priest and our apostle. Our high priest and our apostle. He is the message from God and the way to God. Fix your mind on him. It's very interesting. It says that he is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The high priest and the apostle of our confession. That is both an internal understanding. There's kind of a theological confession, right? Like the classic confessions, right? There's an internal theological understanding that Jesus is both the word from God to us and he is is also the means to have a relationship with God through his propitiation, to use a long word, right? There's a theological understanding, but that word confession also means something about a public declaration. He's the apostle and high priest of our internal understanding, and he's also the apostle and high priest of our outward expression, our outward declaration. He says, consider this Jesus. Consider him. You know, it's easy to get your mind fixed on all kinds of different things. It's easy in this life to get distracted by all kinds of things. I've I've been the pastor here at this church for almost four months, and I've had lots of conversations with lots of different people from lots of different places, and they've been great conversations, but can I tell you how many of those conversations were centered on the work and the person of Christ? Very few. Very few. Most of the time, we talk about the trappings of church. Most of the time, we talk about peripheral things, not essential things. Most of the time, we talk about sort of the structures and the means, the methods of religion. But occasionally I get to have conversations that are centered and focused on Christ. What is it that your mind is fixed upon? Even as a Christian, what is it that your mind is fixed upon? What is it that you find yourself thinking about? What is it that sits right there in the midst of everything you do at work and everything you do with your friends and everything you do in your free time? There should be a preoccupation in the life of the holy brothers and sisters, those who share a heavenly calling from heaven and to heaven, a preoccupation and a fixation on the person of Christ. And sometimes we slip away from that. Sometimes we slip away from it. The author here is saying, 
Don't slip away. He's already said it. He's saying it again. Be careful to consider him, to focus your eyes on this apostle and high priest. He goes on to say this in verse two, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, to the Jewish Christian audience that he's writing to in part, this would have been a a kind of like a, a, a point, but it also would have been a moment of nervousness. Because here he says, this apostle and high priest of our confession was faithful in God's house, just like Moses. And to a Jewish audience, they'd be like, like Moses? Well, Moses is the best. Like, you want to talk about faithfulness? Like, nobody's more faithful than him. He is the coolest. He is the best. Moses is the one we all want to be like. He's the one we've always wanted to be like. He's our national hero. But there would also be a sense of trepidation or a sense of nervousness because of the equation with Moses. The fact that the writer of the Hebrews is saying Jesus was faithful just like Moses would on one hand make people go, well, that's a good thing, but careful now, careful now, because now you're talking about Moses and he's kind of a big deal, right? And the author of the Hebrews goes even one step further because he knows, he knows the posture of people's hearts toward Moses, that there is a tendency in his audience to want to elevate that human to want to elevate that faithful servant. Listen, the writer of the Hebrews isn't going to try and diminish the faithfulness of Moses. He's not going to try and tear Moses down. But what he is absolutely going to do is say, even as much as you revere Moses, you have to understand Jesus is greater still. Look at what he says. Hebrews chapter three. He says, this high priest and apostle of our confession who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus, verse three, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Careful now, right? Careful. Don't talk trash about Moses. Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The writer of the Hebrews is making a comparison here. He says, look, we're not going to argue about the fact that Moses was faithful in the house. Moses was faithful in the house of God. But what we absolutely have to affirm and remind the audience of is that while Moses was faithful in the house, while Moses is a part of the house, God is the builder of the house. And there's a vast difference between the builder of the house and those in the house, right? Jesus is superior to Moses. I don't know who your heroes are, but you can imagine that to the initial audience that heard this, there was a sense of like, what are you trying to say? Uh, think about your heroes. Just picture them. Whoever it is that you sort of look up to, human beings that, you, that you've sort of looked up to since you're a kid. For me, uh, my heroes. I mean, we could we name people like uh, Steven Seagal and Mr. T and uh, the host of Survivor, Jeff Probst, right? So all these people... All these people are people that in one way or another I look up to. I mean, Jeff Probst is unarguably the best television host of all time. Uh, Mr. T has such a great mohawk, and he was good in both Rocky Three and A-Team, of course. And then uh, Steven Seagal, I mean, you can't argue with that. That guy has a glorious ponytail, or at least he used to, and he knew karate fighting, and it was just awesome. So think about your heroes. Your heroes may be uh, even more grand than mine, but think about your heroes and get them all in a line, right? Line them up and then put Jesus in that line. And just let them talk about who they are and what they've done, right? Well, I'm the greatest baseball player who ever lived. I'm the greatest politician and statesman who ever lived, right? I'm the greatest engineer who ever, you know, I'm the one who created the cure for this and I created the vaccine. Put all your heroes in a line and let them talk about all the things they've done and then have Jesus at the end of the line. And when you get to the end of the line, Jesus looks back and goes, I made all of those dudes. 
What are you going to say? Moses was faithful in God's house. Moses is a faithful part of God's house, but Jesus is the builder. And he's also in this text equated then with God. God is the builder of the house. Jesus is superior to Moses. Not only that, look at what he says next. He says in verse five, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. I love this idea of God's house. Jesus was spoken of in the prophecy to David. In First Chronicles, when God speaks to David and says, your descendant will build a house for me. There was one sense in which he was talking about Solomon in the temple, but there was a greater sense in which God was pointing all the way to the son of Joseph, right? The descendant of David who would build a house for God, not a physical house made of gold and silver, but a spiritual house. First Peter, first Peter chapter two, talking about us in first Peter two, four, it says, as you come to him, that's Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us are a living stone in a spiritual house where God resides and is on display. Solomon built a temple. Jesus built a household of God. He built a household, living stones. Moses was a servant in that house, but Jesus is a son. Moses was a servant, but Jesus is a son. It says in Ephesians 2.19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints of God and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, were also, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's something that happens in us. In us. The Spirit of God resides and dwells. He says Moses was a part of the house. He was a servant in the house. But Jesus is the son. He's the heir. So we can talk about the, the, the greatness of Moses. He was a faithful part of a house that God built. Moses was a faithful servant, even testifying. It says in this text, back to Hebrews chapter three, that Moses himself testified to things that would be said later. Verse five, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses, writing the Pentateuch, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses declared the truth that Jesus would come. So it's no wonder then that in John 5, 45, when Jesus is speaking to the Jews, he says to them, listen, you, you don't know me and you think that, that I'm going to judge you, but it's not going to be me that judges you. This is what Jesus says in, in John 5, 45. Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, yoink, right? Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, Jesus says. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God. But Jesus is the son over the house. Moses was a part of this spiritual dwelling. But God is the builder. You know, I think we as Christians can fall into a trap of elevating 
the messenger over the message. I think sometimes we can elevate the structure over the builder. And I don't just mean a building, although sometimes it's that. But we have this tendency to elevate things that are, that are just tools to be used by God and to make them the center of our faith. We spend our time considering those. I can't tell you as I was traveling around the country how often I would run into people who would go, oh, you know, well, we, we go to Pastor Joe's church or we go to Pastor Mitch's church or we go to Pastor, like, can I just tell you? There is no reason ever to refer to a church by the name of the messenger inside the church. There is no reason to, I, I, God forbid that we get to a place where people refer to E.V. Free Fullerton as Pastor Darren's church. I just as soon never have my name mentioned because this is a church that has to be considering the Lord Jesus, that has to be elevating the Lord Jesus above all things. Moses was faithful, but the tendency for us is to want to elevate the messenger over the message, Jesus himself, to want to elevate the structure over the builder. And there is a sincere and serious, a vital warning for each and every one of us in this text to consider him. Holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider this Jesus who is both the message from God and the way to God. Moses was faithful. Human beings can be faithful, but he is the builder. He is the son. You know, before we even continue looking at the text, I think it's worth taking time this morning to just stop and respond, to just worship, and to think, to consider Christ, and to sing his praises. Would you stand to your feet with me? We want to take just a moment in the midst of this study to celebrate and consider Christ. Let's do that now. You guys can have a seat. You know, when we think about this message, considering Jesus, I mean, I, I think a lot of us we want people to consider Jesus, don't we? But we tend to think of it in evangelical terms or evangelistic terms. We go, yeah, there are all these people in the world who don't know Christ. And because they're lost in sin, because they're set to be separated from him forever, we want the world that we live in to consider Jesus. So we do think in terms of this idea of considering Jesus. What's interesting about this particular text is that it isn't written to people who don't know him. The text is written to people who know him very well. In fact, it says, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling. This text and this call to consider Jesus is written to us. And so we have to step back and go, wait a second, why should we have to consider Jesus? I mean, we're here. We came to church. I mean, we showed up on time for the thing. We got our Bibles in our laps. We're singing the songs. We know how to go through the motions. We know how to do all the right stuff. Why do we need to consider him? We're in. Talk to somebody who doesn't know him. And that's exactly why the warning is there. And that's exactly why the call from the Holy Spirit in the text is to consider him again. Because we can fall into the trap of going, yeah, I get it. I'm a Christian. I'm in. And somehow think that it isn't necessary for us to consider him still. To consider him often. To consider him always. To fix our hearts and settle our minds upon the person of the Lord Jesus and it's to that then that he comes. He says here in chapter three, verse six, he says, but as Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, talking about the fact that Moses was a servant, he spoke about things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Second half of verse six says this, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let me read that to you one more time. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What's that supposed to mean? 
I don't know. Are you guys like scary movies? I, I love scary movies, right? You, yeah? How many of you like scary movies? Anybody? No? Just me. All right. You guys come over to my house and watch scary movies together. I, I like scary movies. And, uh, and I'm, a, I'm, you know, what, I don't, I'm not talking about the gross ones, but I like scary movies because here's the thing. When you're watching a scary movie, you kind of always have the ability to go, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. That's not real. Right? I hate, hate scary Bible texts, right? Because you don't have the ability to go, that's not real, that's not real. You have to go, oh my goodness, this is real. He says, we are his house. We've already talked about it. That Jesus came to build a spiritual house that we, like living stones, are being built up into a place where God's spirit can reside. It says, and we are his house if, that word if is terrifying. Think about it for a second. If we hold fast our confidence. And the hope in which we boast. Our confidence. Our confidence in the saving work of Christ. Our confidence in the fact that he came in the incarnation. That he applies his holiness to us. That he extends to us resurrection life by his grace. And the boasting in our hope is the way in which that again is externalized. It's not just an internal hope. It's not secret agent Christianity. It's this sense in which I both have a confidence who Christ is. And it just gushes out of me. If we hold fast to our confidence and the boasting in our hope, we're part of his house. But you have to stop and go, what is that if supposed to mean? Well, it's important to think about it. And some of you maybe are starting to get nervous, right? Like, what's this guy trying to say? Because look, the thing is, we're saved by the work of Christ and not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Titus is very clear. Ephesians says, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if we're saved by Christ and only by Christ, if it's not by our effort, then we're saved once and for all, right? It's called eternal security or whatever, you know, perseverance of the saints. And people go, yeah, you know what? I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus. So I'm, I, I got the ticket, the golden ticket to heaven, and I'm, I'm set to go. And when anybody starts to say, we are his house, if we hold fast our confidence, you start to go, what's that supposed to mean? Are you trying to say that I can lose my salvation? Is that what you're trying to say, buddy? Because if so, I'll find a different church, you know? (laughs) Listen, Jesus himself, people already gathering their things. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is very clear about where our security comes from. John chapter five, verse 24, Jesus himself says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's a finality and security to that. Jesus says in John six thirty seven, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. It's very clear that Jesus says, I am the one who extends resurrection life. I'm the one who extends eternal life to people and nobody can take that away. Nobody can take that away. You're secure because of the work of Christ. But Jesus will also say in passages like John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He says in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You start to feel the tension of this a little bit? What's it saying? 
Is it saying we have to hold fast to our confidence and we have to boast in our hope in order to have eternal life? Because if that's what it's saying, then it sounds like we have to do something to get resurrection life. And we don't believe that. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that the evidence or the proof of your faith in Christ, the saving work that he does on your behalf and only by his grace, the evidence of that saving work is a life of faithfulness that follows. We're gonna talk about that more in the week to come, but there is absolutely a warning for us to pay closer attention, to consider Jesus, to sit up a little bit straighter, to hold fast to our confidence and to boast in our hope because those things are the evidence of who we are. I got the opportunity to go sailing uh, last night. We didn't actually sail. We just did like a harbor cruise with Pastor Dan. And I did a little research in advance because I was nervous that we were gonna be stuck somewhere like Gilligan's Island for a long time and I wanted to be ready. So I, you know, when you look up navigational terms and you do a little research there, there's a thing called dead reckoning. You know what that is? You, my, I, I wasn't totally sure what it was, but it sounds cool. It sounds like it'd make a good Steven Seagal movie, to be honest. It might be a Steven Seagal movie. We'll have to check that. Anyway, um, dead reckoning is the idea that even if you don't have all of your instruments, you can plot a course if you know for certain a fixed position. If you have a fixed position and you know it, you can plot a course based on one fixed position, and that's called dead reckoning. We don't use it as much us mariners. Uh, I've been out on a sailboat just this once, but uh, we mariners, we don't have to use dead reckoning that much anymore because of global positioning satellites and whatever. But back in the day, if you had a fixed position, you could plot your course accurately. But the problem became if you didn't know the right fixed position, if you thought you were looking at the North Star, but you weren't actually looking at the North Star, then all of that other reckoning and all of the other math and all of the other work that went into it was simply leading you in the wrong course. Dead reckoning, the central point to dead reckoning is you have to be fixed on the right point initially. And the reality is we've all met people who had great testimonies, great conversion stories, people who got saved at the Billy Graham crusade and they came forward and they taught Sunday school classes and they did all these other things, all these sort of external religious trappings, and yet they've fallen away. Where are they now? Where'd they go? Well, they, they drifted. Why? because they weren't centered on Christ. Maybe they were centered on an experience. Maybe they were centered on an organization. Maybe they were centered on having their needs met. Maybe they were centered on all host of other things. Maybe they were centered on the attention that comes from having a great testimony. I don't know what they were centered on, but unless they were centered on Christ and had their eyes and their hearts and their hope fixed on him, then your dead reckoning is all off. And every other course you plot from selfishness or from the messenger rather than the message or from the structure rather than the builder, every other bit of navigation is going to lead you off course if you're not first and foremost centered on the North Star. And for us, the Lord Jesus is the center of it all. He says, we are his house as evidenced by us holding our confidence fast and the boasting in our hope. That's the proof It's not the way in which we're saved, but it's evidence that we're saved. And so it behooves us then to pay close attention, to consider Christ. And he gives us a follow-up back to Hebrews chapter 3. He then says this in verse 7. And this is sort of an introduction to where we'll be next week. In verse 7 he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I want you to note too, this is really cool. He says, when he's quoting, he's quoting from Psalm 95. This is a very familiar, uh, a very familiar text to the Hebrew audience because this is the text that they recite at the beginning of the evening synagogue services. So they all knew this by heart. Psalm 95. 
He quotes from it, but look at the way he quotes from it. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, that's present tense, referring to something the Holy Spirit actually said in Psalm 95 at an earlier time. He's referring in the present tense to the Holy Spirit speaking now something that he originally gave earlier. What the, that says something really beautiful about his understanding and his theology of the scriptures. When we read God's word today, today it is the Holy Spirit speaking through his word afresh. Right? He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, not said, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says, be careful. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. But we have to be careful because it says, when the Holy Spirit speaks, when God speaks, it is possible for our hearts to be hardened. So be careful that your heart isn't hardened to the voice of God, that you don't become like those people our ancestors. You know what he's talking about, right? He's referring to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is where Psalm 95 draws its meat. Exodus 17 comes two chapters after the, the chapter we finished our Exodus series in. Some of you may not have been here for the Exodus series, but not too many weeks ago, we had looked at the first 15 chapters of Exodus. The people are brought out of Egypt in power. They're part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the Passover. I mean, they are seeing things that their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-grandparents only dreamed of seeing come to fulfillment. They're watching God deliver them from Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet. God leads them out through the plagues, through the Passover. He leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. He leads them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He destroys their enemies in front of their faces. In Exodus chapter 15, it says, the whole congregation worships in response to who God is. The song of Moses and Miriam. It's an incredible celebration. And yet two chapters later in Exodus 17, the people are looking around going, is God even here? Is he even among us? As they're, they're thirsty for water. They test God. They quarrel. They're rebellious. Psalms 95 says, when God speaks, don't let your heart be hardened. Don't test him as our ancestors did. And God's wrath was incurred upon them. Why? Because even though they'd seen him, it says, they saw my works, God says. They saw my works, but they did not know my ways. They saw my works, but they did not know my ways. It reminds me of the passage where Jesus says, there will be people in the last days who will come and say, we cast out demons. We we prophesied in your name. We did all kinds of religious things. And Jesus says, I'll have to look at them and go, yeah, I'm not arguing about any of those. I'm not saying you didn't cast out demons or you didn't prophesy, you didn't do all those religious things, but you don't know me. The key for us is to consider Jesus, not the stuff we're doing or the stuff other people are doing or the religious external sort of trappings of faith, but to consider Jesus, to know him, not just to know his works, but to know his ways. And there's a stern warning for us that we are his house if we continue. We'll look at that more. But is it possible that there may be some of you here this morning who've aligned their lives with the wrong star? Who've maybe elevated the messenger over the message or the structures over the builder or the servant over the son? It's an easy trap to fall into and it's also an easy trap to listen to a message like this and go, yeah, yeah. Preach it. Yeah, there's lots of people in this room who need to hear that. 
you know? I see a bunch of people who I hope they're listening. I hope they sit up straight, you know, they need, you know, whatever. Like, isn't it so easy for us to go, man, I hope other people get this. Holy brothers and sisters, we who partake in the heavenly calling, you consider Jesus. You consider him. Think about the course of your life and the the direction that you've plotted and ask yourself, have I elevated messengers over the message? Have I elevated structures over the builder? Have I elevated servants over the son? Be careful that when the Lord speaks, that your heart doesn't become hardened like it happened to our ancestors, like it's happened to so many that we know who appeared to be followers of Christ, but who had no true faith, who had no true salvation, as is proved by the fact that they lost their confidence in their boasting and hope, that they walked away from it, that they drifted because they did not pay careful attention. The cure for lagging confidence and muted hope is considering Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would do a work in us, that you would do a work in us that we would not be people who simply nod our heads and hope that other people consider Jesus, but that we would look into the mirror of your word and see our reflection in it. That we would look to the places where we have elevated the wrong things, look to the places where we have focused on the servant instead of the son, that we would consider you, that we would fix our eyes on you as the cure for lagging confidence and muted hope. We pray those things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand to your feet and worship with us again in response?